everyone, and welcome to Frazis Capital Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I have a chat with Anna Saturis, and we cover Afterpay, a couple of Australian commodity stocks, uh, views on markets, and a little bit about the Australian economy. I uh, hope you enjoy. Hi, Michael. Hi, Anna. How's it going? Really well. How are you? Uh, good. Good. So, Michael, can you tell me how are things going with Fraser's Capital? Things are going well since the start of the year. You know, our markets have rallied strongly. Uh, we performed roughly in line with markets, probably a bit better than Australian markets, uh, in line with those overseas. And really, we've gone through most of US companies' earnings. So we've had a pretty good close look at how things have gone over the three months of market turbulence. That's just been pretty solid for most people. So how has it gone for portfolio companies? Uh, it's been pretty good for us. So Facebook reported very well. It's obviously been under a bit of a cloud. It's above our purchase price now. And broadly, the thesis there is that the amount they're earning per user in the United States can be replicated overseas. So our user growth has been roughly flat in the developed world, still growing quite strongly outside. And it's actually the revenue per user that's the most interesting thing because they're earning about $34 from their users in the US, but worldwide they're only earning about seven, uh, including the US. There's clearly a lot of scope to generate more revenue per user. That's broadly where they're going. I mean, management is um, definitely focused on getting those user per rev- revenue per user numbers up, perhaps at the cost of privacy and other things. But there's no doubt the efforts to drive revenue are actually quite good for shareholders. And of course, you have to remember they have Instagram and WhatsApp, and they're probably the two most exciting social media properties in the developed world. Uh, So it's not just Facebook itself. What else was interesting? Amazon reported. So Amazon in the last quarter generated over 19 billion of free cash flow. And it really kind of shows how they're transitioning from an unprofitable, fast-growing tech business to a highly cash-generated tech business. Uh, And it's still down, you know, quite substantially from its highs. And really, the biggest risk for Amazon and Facebook, too, is regulation. Now, one of the ways that regulation might play out would be to get Facebook to split off Instagram and WhatsApp and Amazon to, say, spin out AWS, which they may do anyway. Both of those moves are likely to be highly positive for shareholders because it would split out the more profitable parts of the business uh, from the rest of it. Now, there's other ways they could be regulated, but really, this would probably be the most effective way of reducing the kind of power and monopoly power uh, these firms have. Alibaba did very well as well, actually. So that was an interesting one because China has been selling off for well over a year now. And that was a pretty crucial period for them because that was when all the data had started turning south. So Alibaba obviously covers a huge part of their online retail space. Uh, So any weakness there would have been bad. They still managed to post very strong growth numbers. So it kind of shows that for the consumers, at least in China, things are still going okay. And it's certainly a very helpful data point in any case. Michael, can you talk a little bit about Afterpay's performance? Sure. Afterpay is a very uh, topical stock in Australia, uh, now the US. So they've announced they've got over 3.1 million customers. They've got 650,000 in the US and growing very fast. So they've only been there since May and they're getting enormous amounts of traction. In terms of how you value a company like that, I mean, Afterpay does kind of break down how they're making money. So you can take the amount they earn from all their merchants can subtract the various cost items and come up with kind of net transaction margin. Uh, You can then kind of forecast how many users they'll get and how much each user will spend and how often they'll spend that in a year. And you can come up with a kind of top line revenue figure for Afterpay. You know, apply your margin to that and you can come up with a valuation. So the company's growing at over 140% 
or has over the last 12 months. Really, the upside is that the US market is over 20 times the size of Australia's. And they've reached a dominant position here where 10% of online retail goes through Afterpay. Um, so if they achieve anything like that in the US, they'll probably be valued in line with payments companies over there. So Stripe is reported to be over 20 billion, for example. PayPal, who's probably their real competitor, is over 100 billion. And I actually argue that Afterpay is a better way to buy something on the internet than PayPal. They basically offer you free interest and the user experience is amazing. I mean, if you have been locked out of, of, out of PayPal, um, I used to change countries a lot. So it's an absolute nightmare trying to get all those things working. Afterpay is just so much easier to use. Uh, and it's just a really interesting stock. It's very, a lot of growth stocks are typically growing at a fraction of the size of that with a fraction of the total market. So it's often spoken in the same sentences, WiseTech, Altium, Appen, things like that. But those companies are, you know, 20, 30, 40% growers at best. Uh, this is materially larger. And I think also the other interesting thing about Afterpay is actually a really good credit business. I mean, if you think about what makes a good credit, it would be a loan that's short-term, it's low in value, and it's quickly repaid. Um, Afterpay ticks all those boxes. You know, the average transaction size is, or the average transaction size is below $200, uh, and it's paid off every two weeks. And um, they don't allow, they don't allow customers to accumulate large debts. And they have a set amortization schedule. So all their credit risk is very rapidly de-risked. What do they get for that? They get 4%. 4% doesn't sound like much, but if you annualize it over, you know, six to eight weeks, annualize that over the course of the year, and it's actually quite a, a high rate. It's actually only more than credit cards for taking a fraction of the credit risk. Uh, so in terms of is it a good credit business, we think it's an excellent credit business. There has obviously been a lot of regulatory attention on Afterpay and other stocks. How has that affected the company? Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of regulatory attention. I think it's probably becoming more obvious to everybody the side effects of these uh, regulatory attacks on lending. You just look at the impact on housing. And whether that's a good thing is a political question, but it certainly wouldn't be a good thing for, for Australian retail, for example, to cut off one of the few growing avenues of credit, um, one of the few things that people are actually excited about to go out and buy things online. Afterpay has said that they're in constant contact with regulators and everything that's kind of come out of their discussions, their speeches, has kind of indicated that everything's under control. Okay. And the worst case scenario would be that new customers have to fill out surveys saying what their income is and revenue is, income is and costs are and things like that. Those things are actually relatively ineffective for lending. I mean, Afterpay's got a simple algorithm. If you default, you're out. So every week that passes, they get to weed out more people on their user base. So if you think about what makes valuable data, I mean, Afterpay has one of the more valuable data points on over 3 million people now. You know, they know which ones will repay a small loan and which ones won't. Mm. And obviously that's incredibly value, be, valuable because you can then lend to the ones that are good credits and not lend to the ones that are bad credits. And in many ways, it's actually more democratic as well. I mean, if you're asking people about revenue and, you know, salary costs, things like that, you're going to shut people out of the credit market who would otherwise, who would have been very happy and very responsible lenders. Mm. It's far better to say if you don't pay back your loan, you won't get access to further credit. And then if you do and you can build up a reliable borrowing history, then you do have access to credit. And when you need it, you can buy things online. You know, so we really think it's a very friendly business. It's a very good credit business. And it's also got that magic pixie dust. I mean, it's, you know, it's really hard to say what will work and what won't. You, know, you can see two restaurants next to each other that are almost identical, but one will be busy and one will be empty. And Afterpay is a bit like that relative to its competitors. And I couldn't tell you exactly why it's done so well, but I can tell you that people do love it. It's managed to generate a huge amount of buzz. You know, there's, um, there's competitors overseas that, you know, are kind of lauded as the fintech startups. So companies like Klarna and Affirm, 
Um, in Australia, there's ZipPay, which is always talked about as a customer. But they're really, I'd say Afterpay is completely different to those models. I mean, Afterpay is one simple product and the management team should be you know, applauded for being so disciplined. All the other companies charge interest and kind of offer lines of credit. And it's very diff- it's, it's basically like a typical loan. It's much less exciting. Uh, it's, it's much harder to understand. And it's just a typical credit business. Whereas Afterpay really does do something different for the consumer. So we think it's interesting. It's got a long way to go. And if they, get, if they continue building traction in the US, and you can, you, can, you can track these things in real time, you, know, you can see inbound traffic into Afterpay's website. You can see Google Analytics data week by week. You can actually track their progress. Uh, and all those indicators are looking very positive. And now with the most recent announcement, you can see that that's actually been the case as well. So it's very helpful to you know, cross-check all those different data points as to how they're going. And if they achieve anything like the success they achieved in Australia overseas, then their best years are definitely ahead of them. Mm, okay. One, we could discuss a couple of other stocks. Yeah. Uh, so an interesting one that's coming to a pivotal top point is Cooper Energy, it's a Victorian gas producer. So we invested in that a year ago at a valuation of about $400 million, basically because they're forecast to generate $200 million from 2020, and their gas plant was basically coming along in 2019, 2019. So what they do is they're basically a Victorian gas producer. A few years ago, they bought Santos's Victorian gas assets when Santos was simplifying their business. And basically, they then raised hundreds of millions of dollars to then develop the, the first new East Coast gas supply. That's now 86% complete by, and it's on budget. It's 86% by budget. And we're kind of coming to that point where they've been investing for a couple of years now. Uh, it's finally time for them to kind of reap the rewards of that. So by the end of this year, they'll have invested over $600 million in a plant. which should be generating $200 million of EBITDA for a number of years going forward. It's an interesting so stock. When will that be up and running? Uh, so it should be up and running by the end of 2019. Okay. And so when do we start? Is that when we'll start to see some? Well, it's kind of valued at $580 million now. So expect that to that that multiple to appreciate. So in 200 million, it could easily get four to six times, which would be substantially above where it is now. In fact, you could even get eight times once it demonstrates that it's, you know, managed to build a plant and can start paying dividends. They also have upside in other projects. So the perfect commodity player, in our view, is something that is already making money uh, and can use that money to fund expansion. So Cooper Energy actually already has assets. Uh, they already generate profits and they're able to use those profits to kind of build the next leg up. So once uh, this project's called Sol, once Sol's complete, I'll then have a huge amount of cash flow and a rock-solid balance sheet to fund further growth and, you know, bigger and larger projects. And they, in fact, already have one, uh, which could increase EBITDA again by about 50%. Um, it's quite a few years away from progress. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of companies like that, actually. Are there any other investments that have captured your interest of late? Uh, one that was in the news a bit was Stanmore Coal. Mm-hmm. So... Stanmore Coal was trading about, we bought in about 80 cents and then it got, it got a takeover bid was launched at a price of 95 cents by a kind of opportunistic Indonesian player. So the company was valued about 200 million, um, but it's forecast to make 140 to 155 million of EBITDA from next year. So this was a, this extraordinary valuation for this company. Um, and really it's, it's kind of hard to describe why companies trade this cheaply, but really it just, its fundamental performance just improved so much. I mean, they bought their core asset for a dollar at the bottom of the coal market. They then funded production, uh, and now the mine is up and running and producing semi-soft coking coal, 
and the prices of that have been very solid. Um, the fall of the Aussie dollar has helped them as well, uh, but they've just been able to f- switch into a state where they're making a ton of cash. And so the share price has actually performed very well. So this isn't, it's a deep value play, but it's not a deep value play where the stock price has been sold off substantially. It's a deep value play where the company itself has expanded dramatically um, is very profitable. So management fought off that takeover bid. Regis, which is a Sydney fund, was on the um, Regal, sorry, was on the shareholder registry, and they probably helped. And management, as part of that takeover defence, announced a special dividend and that they would buy back 10% of the company's shares. So we know that over the next year there will be, you know, a firm insider bid for the stock, which is also helpful, and also means that, you know, provided things hold up when risk sentiment returns, you could really have an explosive return uh, from that. And again, it's got like a rock solid balance sheet, you know, no debt, net cash. They'll be able to fund expansion. They're buying up adjacent mines uh, and adjacent production. And they've got a 15-year mine life. So it's really got a lot going for it, you know, as far as, you know, small cap mining stocks go. So your forecast going forward over the next month? For general markets? I can never really predict what happens over the next month or the next year. I'd say that... You know, we're kind of okay in January because we effectively stayed invested, which is what we'll always do. Uh, going forward, there's probably two things. There's people are still underweight. You know, people, a lot of active managers sold and reduced their exposure into the sell-off. Uh, there's a huge underweight in technology. There's a manager underweight in emerging markets, which is now starting to be reversed. So there's definitely, these are like the raw ingredients for a long sustainable rally as people just have to buy into stocks. You know, and as confidence returns, there's like huge, a large scope for money to come into the market uh, and push prices back up. So that's kind of the positive side. The negative side is that we're still dependent on what happens in the US. So there was an employment report in December where the US added 300,000 jobs. Now, that's just not what happens in a recession. You know, and employment's the key driver here. That, that got revised down to 220,000. Um, but they announced another job report for January, which was another 300,000 jobs. So you've got, say, half a million more Americans working now than have been at work, you know, than were working previously. That's like more spending power. That's more, more people buying things. You know, it's like the opposite of, of what you'd expect in a recession. At the same time, you've got this coordinated policy response uh, that's finally happened. So the Chinese are stimulating. The Fed's totally reversed their hawkish outlook. So they're one of the key drivers of the sell-off in October. Um, the very December was this fear that the Fed was going to cause a recession by raising rates until the economy couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and the economy is probably pretty close to that brink. And they've totally walked that back. And employment is still strong. So in many ways, the best kind of environments for equities are kind of like a weak economy with the central bank trying to stimulate from a low base and from a very underweight position. So we actually got some of those things. So, I mean, nobody really knows what's going to happen in the future. That's why it's so challenging. You know, the performance of the next year will probably depend on whether the job market does crack in the United States or Europe. But if it doesn't, then there's a good chance that this rally continues. Uh, And I certainly would be surprised if we retest the lows uh, without a significant deterioration in the data. Uh, And like I said, we've already seen that that hasn't happened yet. Um, So it's interesting. We'll find out how things go. What about within Australia? We've got an upcoming election. Uh, Australia's a funny one because I'd say Australia's got troubles independent of what's happening in the global economic cycle. So really, if there's a lending squeeze here, which has obviously happened, then that's going to hurt everything. So it's going to hurt housing prices and through housing prices, it hurt most Australian families. Um, so if that occurs, then there's a good chance that Australia, 
like retail, all the different sectors are in a lot of trouble. Uh, and in Australia, Australia's actually kind of held up. There hasn't been any employment roll-on effects. Uh, typically, when something goes wrong in housing, that is a leading indicator for employment, just because it's uh, such a high employment sector. Um, Australia's got that release valve of the Aussie dollar, of course. So there was a fairly significant fall in the Aussie dollar last year, which meant the performance of the ASX was actually better than it might have been otherwise. But it's really hard to see how housing could turn around because this isn't a case of high interest rates knocking you know, sentiment and buying power and lifting every, and sucking cash out of everybody through the mortgages. This is, a, this is really a regulatory crackdown that actually started before the Royal Commission uh, when, bank, when, the, when regulators tightened lending standards. Um, but it was certainly intensified when so many bankers were hauled up in public and challenged on all their lending decisions. You know, there's really two ways you can look at these things, and it's like a political decision. I mean, do you want people to be able to freely borrow and set up businesses, buy houses, knowing that the vast majority will find ways to pay it back, but there will be a small number who really struggle? Or do you want to actually have really strict lending standards and cut huge segments of the market, the population out of the market to the point where you really need you know, a rich parent to fund the first purchase of your house? Uh, and it seems that the political climate is definitely swinging towards the latter and that's simply going to make it harder for people to get loans. And we do know what works for economies and markets. And you want lending growth. That's kind of one of the drivers of everything. Uh, if you have a lending freeze, then prices generally fall. And if you cut significant parts of the market out, significant parts of the population out of the market, that's going to have a negative impact on prices. And it's, it, this is going to be much harder to reverse than a, an, an interest rate move that was too aggressive I mean, the banks are now effectively self-regulating as well. So they're trying to get ahead of the curve uh, by, by tightening their lending standards. And I guess one of the interesting things is this didn't happen in the context of massive bank losses. I mean, delinquencies are extremely low in Australia. And if you add in, you know, a potential new Labor government, changes to the tax code, again, political decisions, these are likely to result in lower prices. That means everybody who has a home is going to be substantially uh, poorer because of it. Um, there'll be winners and losers. Obviously, people without a home that want to buy one will be able to buy one at uh, lower rates. But the reality is, is that's not going to be good for sentiment, for markets, for spending, for all those important things. So I really think independently of the cycle, Australia has some um, secular factors that are just going to cause a bit of trouble. And we have, we're not particularly exposed to this kind of thing. I mean, we have a handful of companies here. Most of them actually sell products offshore. So they get you know, the benefit of that natural Aussie dollar hedge. Uh, and really, as long as those companies hold up and we expect them to do, to do so, and we'll certainly be tracking, to do, tracking them closely, uh, we shouldn't be affected directly by turning the housing cycle. Uh, but it's something to be aware of. I mean, it also raises the question, should you be finding a way to bet against, uh, against the cycle in this way? Um, should you be shorting banks and uh, plays like that? And I, I really don't think so because, you know, banks pay extraordinary dividends. So your holding cost for a short there is, is very high. And they're still making money. So it doesn't really make sense to me. Another option would be to kind of sell the Aussie dollar. And we've done that to some degree because we hold some US dollar offshore. And there is kind of a natural hedge there. It's a two-edged sword, obviously. Currency markets, kind of like commodity markets, have a habit of making everybody look a bit foolish. Another option, uh, which probably makes a lot more sense for Australian investors, though we haven't done it in the fund, is to actually buy Australian bonds. So if there is a recession, rates will almost certainly come down. And you actually get paid a yield to hold those bonds. Uh, in the face of you know rising 
risks and the high likelihood of a housing recession turning into an actual recession, it kind of does make sense. But in general, you make far more money by investing in great companies that do really well uh, than you can make by catching a short-term swing. So it's probably better off to stay on the sidelines. And if dividend yields of these Aussie banks hit 10% aren't franked, then it probably makes sense to buy them and make your money that way. I think that's a far better way of playing it rather than trying to be too clever on the short side. And that wraps up our second podcast. We're going to try and do these on a far more regular basis. So if you have any feedback, please let me know. And good luck in the markets. <laughs>